HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a new podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $175 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. Each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Content Director at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. Today's guest is Caroline Cotto, co-founder and chief operating officer of Renewal Mill, an upcycled food company that works with byproducts from plant-based milk, usually soybean pulp, oat pulp, and almond pulp, that's dried and milled to produce premium, high-fiber, gluten-free flours that are both sold as part of its product portfolio and used to create Renewal Mill baking mixes. Caroline has been named to lists such as Forbes' 30 Under 30 list and the Specialty Food Association's 12 Under 35 list of breakout talent to watch. Caroline, the upcycled food market is really interesting to me since it seems to hold a lot of untapped potential. When were you first introduced to the world of upcycling? Thanks so much, Julie. Um, so we like to say that upcycling is not really a new concept. Um, you know, your grandma was probably upcycling if, you know, we people who grew up um, in a time when there was a little bit more scarcity um, and just needed to use everything that they purchased. So every chef or anyone in their kitchen who's being a little bit scrappy and using every odd and end, um, they're essentially upcycling. But I think the term really started to come to the forefront when people started to learn about the massive food waste problem that we have here in the U.S. and also globally. 
And so the NRDC, uh, about almost 10 years ago now, released a report that said about 40% of food in the U.S. is going to waste. And that's really when this first crossed my radar and a, and a bunch of other people in the industry um, that not only was so much waste happening, but that this waste was having a massive impact on climate change. Wow. Yeah. As the mother of 13 children, my grandmother was definitely upcycling. <laughs> um, 100%. So how did the idea um, for Renewal Mill come to be? Yeah. So it actually came out of my co-founder's firsthand experience with food waste. So her name is Claire. She owned um, Boston's first organic juice company. And she, okay. you know, had taken a lot of care to source locally grown produce that she was bringing into her juicing business to make these premium um, juices out of. And at the end of every day, she was left with a massive pile of fruit and vegetable pulp that she couldn't use, um, which not only hurt from an economic perspective because she was throwing out, you know, like 60% of the fruit and vegetable um, but mm -hmm. also from an environmental perspective, because she was, you know, trying, she tried to use it in things like muffins or um, crackers, but there was just too much of it. And so she was having to, to put it right into the bin. Um, and so the idea for Renewal Mill came when she had a fortuitous conversation with the owner of a large tofu company, who essentially said, you think you're making a lot of pulp in your, you know, tiny one-off juicing business. You know, I'm making tons and tons of pulp every week at my facility when I essentially juice soybeans to make soy milk, which is the first step of making tofu. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. So how did you meet her? Um, so I was working for a food tech accelerator. So helping incubate food businesses all along the supply chain. Um, and Claire had the idea for Renewal Mill and was coming to the accelerator. And we immediately kind of bonded over this shared passion of um, reducing food waste. And also I came from a nutrition background. Um, and what's happening in our food system is that we're actually processing most of the nutrition out of our food. A lot of the fiber and protein is what gets left behind as byproducts. Um, and so we thought, okay, there has to be a better way to keep all of this valuable nutrition in the supply chain. Um, and so let's get our creative thinking caps on on how to do that. And Renewal Mill was born. Okay. And then, so tell me about the products that Renewal Mill makes and how did you decide on these particular products? Yeah. So our flagship ingredient is called Okara flour and it's the actual tr traditional name for the um, pulp left over when you make soy milk. So essentially we dehydrate that pulp and then mill it into a flour. Um, it's very neutral in flavor and color. It has a very, um, you know, you can mix it with traditional flour and you won't really notice a taste difference, but it's packed with fiber. And so um, we started with that and then realized that there was also all of these pulps coming from other byproduct or other plant-based milk streams. Um, so our second ingredient is an oat milk flour made from the pulp left over from making oat milk. Um, and that is, you know, almost 50% protein. So really nutritious. Um, both of these are, are gluten-free. Um, but then those just selling the flowers on their own, it still requires the consumer to do quite a bit of work and baking in their own kitchen. So we wanted to make it even easier for folks to engage with upcycled ingredients. And that's why we released our baking mix line. 
um, which is just to add oil and water. Um, so all of them feature one of our hero upcycled ingredients, but are, are super easy to use. Um, and then even easier, we also have launched two SKUs of ready-to-eat cookies featuring these ingredients um, so people can engage with upcycled on the go. Are those the products that you partnered with? I think um, Miyoko's Creamery partnered with on maybe one of the cookies? Yeah, those are the ones. So um, for those unfamiliar, Miyoko's Creamery is a, a vegan butter company also based here in Northern California. And um, they had some leftover butter at the end of their production runs in their machines that right. was um, otherwise going to go to waste. So we said, we'll take it and combine it with our Okara flour to create um, vegan, gluten-free, ready-to-eat cookies. So it's like the fat source in our cookie, which lends a really beautiful flavor um, and and a really exciting story about partnering with another woman-owned brand um, that's really trying to do better for the planet through plant-based food. And so how did you um, meet up with Miyoko? I mean, how did that relationship come to be? So yeah, Miyoko's, like I said, is is really focused on sort of animal welfare, veganism, um, and they had hired a sustainability manager. And that, that's actually how we got connected is I was friends with their sustainability manager. She was taking a holistic look at their entire supply chain, their entire production and saying, you know, we have this side stream or, you know, this leftover butter that's, you know, really rich and nutrient dense and, and beautiful flavor um, that's kind of doesn't have a home right now. Like, would you be interested in, in helping us out? And we jumped at the chance. Yeah. Um, so when you started um, this company, did you envision that you, you know, you would partner with established brands in such a way? Yeah. So collaboration is key to our brand identity. Um, just kind of like that story I told you of how we got off the ground. Um, it's essential for us to work with other companies because we're literally taking their byproducts. So mm -hmm. we are a partner that comes in and is a complete off-take solution for them so that they don't have to waste. And we can kind of help be that, that partner. Um, our equipment is sometimes literally inside of their factories to prevent any sort of food safety challenges. So um, yeah, we've been extremely collaborative since the get-go. Um, of late, in the last few years, we've really doubled down on partnerships for our branded products because it's a great way to get the word out there about upcycled food by introducing other companies' audiences to the concept of upcycling and, and vice versa. They get, in, like, they get introduced to upcycling and then we're able to introduce their mission to our audience. So in Miyoko's case, that's, um, you know, really hitting home on, on the veganism and animal welfare. Um, but we partner with a lot of women-owned brands, especially, so um, and, and really focus on people kind of doing products across the, the aisles of the grocery store. So we partner with Pulp Pantry, which is a grain-free chip company. They use our Okara flour in their chips. Um, we're partnered with Seconds Crackers, which uses our oat milk flour in their gluten-free crackers. Um, we partner with Square Baby which is a Bay Area-based baby food company that actually uses our Okara flour as a way to do early allergen introduction of soy allergens to um, okay. babies through their food. Um, and we've also partnered with like local ice cream brands to do inclusions. So like Humphrey Slocum and, and also Salt and Straw ice cream. Great. And tell me about, so you touched a little bit on the education piece. Um, 
Is there room on packaging to educate the consumer a little bit about what an upcycled product is if they've never been introduced to the concept? Yeah, so we we definitely do that on our pack as well. Um, it's really great because we helped start the Upcycled Food Association a few years ago to kind of bring everybody who's doing upcycling into the same room and say, let's really unify our language around this concept to help consumers understand what it means. And what came out of that was the first of its kind upcycled certification for upcycled food. So this mm-hmm. is a, a special mark that you can put on your pack that really helps consumers understand that when I purchase upcycled food, I'm helping fight food waste, which is helping fight climate change. Um, and so we put that mark on all of our products. They've all been upcycled certified, which is great, and do a lot of education around what that symbol means. Um, And then also try to give folks like a forest for the trees view of saying, you know, when you purchase upcycled, you're also um, helping prevent the wastage of all the resources that went into growing that food. So we can calculate like how much water is saved and how much carbon is prevented from being emitted and how much food waste you're diverting from landfill by purchasing this product. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the logistics of um, sourcing these byproducts for your own products? How does it work? Yeah. So like I said, it it really comes down to partnerships and finding the right partner producers who have these byproduct streams. Um, Byproducts Mm -hmm. are a huge headache for manufacturers. So often they have full-time employees dedicated to dealing with them. Um, In the case of the byproducts we work with, they start spoiling really quickly. So usually within the first four hours because they're about 80% water. Um, And so they also take up quite a bit of space. So our first factory partner actually was using almost a quarter of their factory floor space to house wet byproduct before disposal. Um, And so it's a huge benefit for them to work with us because we're able to say, you know, you don't have to figure out how to truck this away anymore. We'll take take it off your hands. Um, And by dehydrating it, we're able to reduce the space and and deal with any food safety issues. So um, we, you know, started with Okara because it had such a a nutrient density of, of fiber and protein and also that neutral color and flavor. So it doesn't really have to be masked when you're using it in different products. And it also was already an FDA-recognized ingredient and had a storied history in countries like Japan. Um, and so we, you can make okara when you make soy milk or when you make tofu. So those are kind of the first partners that we've gone after. Um, mm-hmm. And then when we found out about the, the oat pulp, there was so much parity um, with okara that that was kind of a natural next step to, to pursue. And also both tofu and oat milk are growing categories in the grocery store, which means that as those demand as the demand for those products grows, so too does the amount of byproduct as more is being produced, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So is there any sort of cost um, associated with um, getting these byproducts, you know, do you are you able to obtain them for free, or do these companies maybe even pay you to take these byproducts off their hands? It's a good question, and it's a common misconception around upcycled food. So there is actually, you know, cost that goes into making these products food safe and shelf stable, and, and bringing them to market as a fully commercialized ingredient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
yeah, it's, you know, in an ideal world, it'd be like, yeah, it's free and you know, we're just <laughs> capturing that lost value, but it's not that simple of a story. So um, we don't pay for the raw material, but we do pay for the processing of it. Um, okay. And it's, yeah, we're happy to support our partners in that way and help them help it be a win-win for everyone. So they're reclaiming some lost economic value and then also getting access to this environmental story as well. Right. Um, so where are these upcycled foods um, sort of merchandised in the supermarket? Are they um, sort of integrated with their conventional counterparts? And do you envision that someday maybe they'll have segregated upcycled sets if they don't already? Yeah. So for the most part, they are integrated with their conventional partners. Um, so we sell our baking mixes in the baking aisle. Um, that's where we <laughs> expect people to look for them. So I think that's great. And then it really makes it a, a shelf, like an on-shelf choice for a consumer. Like I can choose Betty Crocker or I can choose Renewal Mill. Um, and these are all the reasons I would choose Renewal Mill. It's you know vegan, gluten free, better for better for you, better for the planet. Alternative. Um, but there are some really innovative retailers doing some interesting things around marketing upcycled foods together. So Whole Foods has done a dedicated end cap that showed, um, basically had a header that said, let's fight food waste together. And then they merchandised like five or six upcycled products on that end cap, which is really cool. Um, we're also putting point of sale marketing materials through the Upcycled Food Association to help show people which products in each aisle are upcycled. So um, shelf talkers or shelf strips that that make that really clear. Um, and then like other other retailers online as well are adding um, dedicated search filters. So people like Thrive Market um, or Mabel, which is kind of a, a smaller um, a B2B retailer, but you can search specifically for upcycled products on those sites um, just to make it a little bit easier. That's great. And I imagine that your your products probably did well during the pandemic as so many Americans took on baking as a hobby. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. So before the pandemic, we were actually doing quite a bit of um, our sales through food service as snacks to offices in the Bay Area. And as you can imagine, imagine with the pandemic, that channel completely closed overnight. So mm-hmm. we um, had already been planning to launch our baking mix line, but it kind of coincided with COVID. Um, and I don't know if you remember back to 2020, but the the shelves in the baking aisle were fairly bare at that time because people were home making banana bread and, and really re-engaging with baking for the first time in a long time. So um, it was a great opportunity for us to kind of slide in and get on shelf when there weren't other options available and for people to try us out. And um, we've kind of seen that sustain itself. Like, um, I think a lot of people were using baking as therapy. (laughs) So uh, we've definitely done a lot of marketing around like stress baking. And um, our our baking mixes are kind of like one bowl, one pan. So it's a a way to make something homemade, but, you know, not to make your kitchen a a whole mess. I love that. Um, and what advice would you give a food maker who's looking to source byproducts to use as ingredients in their products, but doesn't really know where to get started? 
Yeah, there are a lot of great resources. Um, definitely can reach out to the Upcycled Food Association. They have a website, which is upcycledfood.org, where you can search certified upcycled products and ingredients um, directly on the website. Uh, there's also an ingredient platform called Shelf Life that's doing a great job of bringing um, upcycled ingredients to the forefront. So I think they have a search filter on their website where you can search for upcycled ingredients. Um, and then, yeah, we're, Renewal Mill is more than happy to help anyone um, if you're interested in using flour-based products um, or if you've come across a byproduct stream in your own production or supply chain um, and you're looking for advice on, on how to commercialize that, definitely um, feel free to reach out to me or anyone at the Upcycled Food Association. We'd love to, love to help um, talk, talk you through that. That's so generous of you. Um, what would you say is next for Renewal Mill? Well, we have a lot on our plate right now, so we're going to continue. We just um, launched nationally at Whole Foods with our baking mix line and flowers this past summer. So um, baking season is officially upon us, so we're definitely doubling down yeah. on uh, sampling our products and getting people excited about baking this holiday season. Um, and then in the new year, we're going to be adding some new upcycled ingredients to our portfolio. Um, so we're excited about those. They'll continue to be uh, gluten-free and nutrient-dense, but um, some different byproduct streams that we're working with. Um, and then we will continue to seek out new partnerships. So we have a, a new partner baking mix launching at the end of November. Um, we're excited to, to share more about that. Um, with another female-owned company from the Bay Area. Um, and then uh, we'll be looking for new partners for um, the upcoming upcoming months in, in 2023. Great. Congratulations on the deal with Whole Foods. Thanks. Yeah, it's been a it's been a definitely a fun adventure to to get products out into the mainstream where we haven't had distribution before um, in in the natural specialty channel. And you can't really ask for a better partner than, than Whole Foods for that. Right. So we're almost out of time, but before we wrap up, we'd like you to participate in our take five segment where we pose five questions to our guest. But first let's pause for a break. Hello everybody. And welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called the Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Darren Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. 
yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. Okay, Caroline, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take 5. What's your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? Definitely the people. I feel like people who work in food are some of the best people in the world, and um, I, I love people who love food. So it's uh, fun to work with them every day. And what do you like most about being a specialty food association member? Um, One of my favorite features is the Specialty Food Association allows companies to post press releases. Um, It's been a really great way for us to get our brand out there and raise awareness about what we're doing on a limited budget. So we definitely take advantage of that, um, as well as love going to all of the SFA trade shows. And if you weren't running a business, what would you be doing? Probably stand-up comedy. <laughs> it's my uh, side side passion. So um, yeah, if I wasn't in a food business, I, I might be doing that. Oh, wow. You're brave. <laughs> What's the one piece of advice you'd give a new food business? It's a great question. I think... Um, you know, a lot of people have ideas for, for food businesses, but kind of stop themselves from starting it because they're like, oh, I, you know, there's so many barriers to entry. I don't know anything about grocery retail. Um, I don't know how to get my product produced. I think kind of going back to my first answer, the food community, especially food founders, are extremely generous of time and um, willing to share their their know-how. So my advice is just just get out there. There's a bunch of Slack channels and, and groups like SFA where you can learn from other folks. So um, yeah, just I would say jump in and um, if you have an idea, start producing your product. Even if you're you know hand stamping bags and hand filling them like we were in our early days, um, it's great just to get your product out into the market and get some feedback and then um, learn from others. And how do you define specialty food? I think specialty food is any kind of food that makes you feel something. Um, for us, you know, we're really trying to inspire hope with our products, especially around the climate discussion, which can be very bleak. Um, and so, you know, saying you can you can fight climate change with us, and it can be delicious and fun and easy, um, is you know how I I would define specialty food. But I think that goes for for worldwide. Anytime you have a unique experience with food. I think that's a really special moment. That's a great answer. A big thank you to Caroline Quato for joining us today. You can find out more about this show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. Special thanks to Caroline and to Heritage Radio Network the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a specialty food association podcast. Spill and Dish is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.